that was the day that I made that promise on my shelter bed that I was going to help other women to rebuild their lives faster than I could. I didn't even know how long it would take me to rebuild my life. But I had to make that promise that I was going to become someone who would be quote unquote successful, who would come back into my shelter and say, look where I am now. And I was homeless too. You can get here. You know, we all deserve the life that we dream about. Welcome to the Intuitively Aligned podcast, a place for changemakers to cultivate their intuition and foster greater impact in their everyday lives. I am your guide, Sydney Bloom. Hi, friends. Welcome to today's episode of the Intuitively Aligned podcast. I am so excited for our guest today. Her name is Leah Gramanis, and she is the CEO of Up With Women. Leah is named one of Canada's 100 Most Powerful Women. She is also a two-time Guinness World Record holder for the heaviest vehicle pulled 100 feet by a woman and the heaviest vehicle pulled in high heels. Leah is the first woman in the world to attempt to pull a jet plane for a Guinness World Record. Leah comes from 17 years of nonprofit leadership, following 13 years of managing complex projects in the technology sector. Her work in the homelessness sector is informed by lived experience as an abuse survivor and formerly homeless autistic teen, which you will hear about. Up With Women has been covered globally, including by The Today Show, The New York Times, CTV News, CBC, Global TV, CNN Money, Chatelaine, and the UK's Daily Mail, among others. Leah is a truly inspiring human being. She is also someone that I've had the privilege of collaborating with in the nonprofit systems change sector here in Toronto, Canada, and I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome her to the show today. Leah, thank you so much for being here. I'm really, really excited to have you on the podcast. No, I'm excited to be here. Do you want to start out by sharing a little bit about who you are, where you come from, and who your people are? Sure. So I am the founder and CEO of Up With Women. It's a national charity that helps recently homeless and at-risk women and gender diverse individuals to rebuild their lives, to be able to build a sustainable pathway out of poverty. And that's actually a very broad population because anyone living in poverty is at risk of homelessness, in our opinion. Yes, yes. So, you know, the organization I started because of a promise I made on my shelter bed when I was a homeless teenager. Back then, I also didn't know I was autistic, but I lived through some fairly significant trauma as a result of my homelessness and really didn't think I had a future at all. I didn't think I was entitled to live anything. So, you know, being able to build up with women and see people transform in a much shorter time than it took me. I mean, it took me almost 10 years just to get back to my starting line. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's probably the best thing ever when it comes to anything else that I can say. I mean, really, who I am is a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> so I'm also a, a lifelong gym class flunky turned Guinness World Record holding strong woman. Yes. I, um, I got into pulling trucks and planes because we were just about to go broke and up with women in our early days. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, the only way that I could actually raise money was by turning myself into a circus act and selling that exposure for sponsorship. I'm also, of course, autistic, and and I'm a late diagnosed autistic woman. You know, women's autism presents very differently than men's. 
and it's much more internal. And so from that perspective, it's been a really interesting few years. It's been about six years since my diagnosis and, and just even being able to redefine my entire history, like finally understanding it through a, a different framework, but also really understanding that my interior world is so different from mm -hmm. so many other people. So we can talk about that a little bit. My people. Yes. My people are my family, my wonderful seven-year-old boy, anyone who comes into this program, anyone who comes to work for Up With Women, anyone who is autistic, anyone who is feeling lost and, and wants to you know, find a better way and find a, a life of meaning and, and make their way there. These are all my people, in my opinion. And I am theirs. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. I felt that the moment that we first met many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. I remember that meeting and I know exactly how we first connected because you were one of the smartest people in the room and I was just blown away by your incredible brain. And I just thought, oh my God, you know, I'm never going to be able to sound that smart. And then all of a sudden, I you're kidding me. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm serious. And well, don't I'm forget that I'm a high school dropout, right? So, you know, anyone who, you know, has clearly had an academic life as well is someone I admire tremendously and look to with awe. And what was surprising to me was that you had tweeted a quote from me. And I was like, wow, <laughs> she actually was impressed with something I said. That's really cool. <laughs> Doesn't it just go to show how we never know what someone else is going through? Because when you got up and spoke, you blew my mind. And it was really obvious to me that out of the probably couple hundred people in the room, I was sort of sitting there fangirling, thinking, maybe if I send a tweet, we'll be able to have a conversation. And then in the end, you and I found a corner and really deep dived on the work that we were both doing, which in both cases was supporting women to move out of homelessness. You had mentioned when you were sharing about who you are and where you come from, the experience that you had had as a teenager. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to go back and share a little bit more I know when we've talked about the experience you had, there was a very crystallized moment where you had a vision and an intention that you set. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. So before I start, there is a tiny trigger warning that I want to provide because there's a mention of depression and suicidal ideation in my story. The beautiful... Absolutely. Wonderful news is that I chose to live and, you know, Up With Women is one of the great results. My family is another. For those who are up for it, you're in for an amazing conversation. So stay mm -hmm. with us. Stay yeah. with us if you can. Yeah. And really, it is like the passing of an airplane, a paper airplane. So essentially, I grew up in poverty, but my life was fairly okay. And I was living with my father at the age of 13, mainly out of choice because I knew that he wouldn't be around and I wanted to become an adult as quickly as possible. And so there was a great deal of negligence and I never knew when the next $10 was going to come around. And so I'd just like eat, eat with $2 whenever I could get 10 bucks and save the rest for <laughs> maybe the day that the money stops coming and, I, and I'm afraid I'm, I might starve. But life wasn't too bad until my grandmother died. She discovered that she had cancer and within a matter of weeks she died. And that sent my uncle and my father reeling and spiraling downward from 
depression to rage to violence and so not knowing that I was autistic you know now I can understand what my life seemed like at the time but when you're not when you're autistic you're not able to read people's faces and so you're not able to see the escalation of violence coming and so it's like not seeing the train coming until you get hit by it and it's clear to me now that there must have been some escalation but all I got was when the violence would happen and so it got severe to you know I became your typical runaway I'd I'd run away from home whenever things got bad and then I'd run right back when things would get bad out there being Mm -hmm. a young woman but also being an autistic young woman seeking a dry place to sleep someone's couch is, you know, going to be fraught with danger. And I certainly wasn't protected from the dangers that could happen. But at one point, my uncle, his violence got severe to the point where he threatened to kill me. And the second time he did it, I called the police and the police wouldn't do anything. And I felt completely shattered and, and I didn't know what to do. And that's when I called an abuse hotline and ended up after a couple of hours, it took them a while to find a a spare bed. But that's Mm -hmm. how I found out about shelters and ended up with an address in one hand and a subway ticket in the other and nothing else on, you know, other than the clothes on my body. And I went into a shelter. And I I have to say, I owe my life to the YWCA. It was a a youth shelter for young girls that I was living in. And it was terrifying because all of Mm -hmm. these girls had had terrible experiences. And, you know, nobody ever came back to the shelter who had rebuilt, who had managed to find their way the only people who ever came back were the people who still needed help. There was a great deal of shame that people felt around the fact that they had been homeless, mainly because nobody ever talked about it, right? If only we talked more about any of the terrible challenges that can befall on us, you know, I think we would feel less alone. We would feel less like it's just us and we're broken and there's something wrong with us, et cetera. But as a result of that, you know, the only proof that I ever had of what my future could be was one of constant struggle and revictimization, because that's all I could see around me. And so at that point, I was just so broken that I didn't know if I wanted to live or die. And I started making a pros and cons list just to try and figure out which one should I choose, you know? Yeah. You know, just a kind of a pragmatic little autistic teenager I was. And so after a series of enlightening experiences that really reawoke my senses, I chose to live. And that day was the day that I made that promise on my shelter bed that I was going to help other women to rebuild their lives faster than I could. I didn't even know how long it would take me to rebuild my life. It felt like it would be an eternity, but I had to make that promise that I was going to become someone who would be quote unquote successful, who would Mm -hmm. have a story to be able to come back into my shelter and say, look where I am now. And I was homeless too. This isn't a dead end. You can get here. You know, we all deserve the life that we dream about. It, It took another 15 years before I finally realized that the fulfillment of that promise was to build up with women. Before that, I thought it was just me going into shelters and telling my story. But, you know, I was trying to make that story. And because I was a high school dropout, I had to drop out of school because of the violence and because, you know, even staying in a shelter, they have lights out rules. I mean, they have to be able to control a large group of traumatized girls. And so they had lights out. So I wasn't even allowed to do homework. 
which seems so backwards. Yeah, I I had to sneak into the dining room after the counselor fell asleep (laughs) in her office. Oh my gosh. So that I could try and write my my essay on the waves Virginia Woolf's the waves I remember that yeah but you know it was okay I think sometimes we restructure our lives and our values in a way that allow us to not feel so constricted and hopeless so you know for me being autistic school wasn't very good for me anyway it wasn't built for me and then on top of it it was just so difficult to be able to do schooling when you're experiencing homelessness And then on top of that, because I had made that promise, my whole life just seemed like a rush that I felt like I didn't even have the time to finish school. And so what that manifested as in my own interior world was, oh, I don't need a piece of paper to define my worth. I'm going to continue to attend school, but I'm not going to ask for any marks. I'm not going to ask for anything. I just want to be able to have the joy of learning. And I was really very focused on joy as much as possible, Mm. because I had lost it so much during that time. I mean, everything was just so dark and so silent. And, you know, I say dark and silent, you know, I speak from a sensory perspective, because also as an autistic, I'm one of the lesser known autistics. What's been popularized in the fairly, you know, blunt object of a representation in social media and in the movies Mm -hmm. uh, of autism is more hypersensitive. You always hear about the people who are screaming and, and, and covering their ears because yeah. it's just too much, right? Whereas with me, I'm much more, everybody is a mix, but I'm much more hyposensitive. And so what that means is that I am not necessarily aware of my environment unless I really try. It's part of the reason why I can pull a 35,000 pound jet because my body sends different signals to my brain than it would to others. It doesn't send those warning signals so quickly. I still don't know how you did that, but carry on. <laughs> well, there we go. It's yeah. a lot of physics. And it's it's also that we just have no idea how strong we are. We yeah, you can tap into that superwoman strength without your brain sending the warning. Yeah. And when people are hyposensitive, they become sensory seekers, right? I like to call them sense seekers because it sort of overlaps in meaning when it comes to also trying to make sense of the world because we can't read faces yes. and, you know, also making sense of my own trauma and everything else. I didn't know that that was different from other people. On top of it, I don't know if it's because of the hyposensitivity or if it's just something that I have, but I also have hyperphantasia, which, you know, is basically for me, it's multisensory hyperphantasia, which means essentially, if I were to imagine an orange, I'd be able to feel the texture of the orange. I'd be able to smell it. I'd be able to taste it. It's really quite lifelike and it's possible that that became quite rich to compensate for that hyposensitivity because now I'm very, very interested in the space between things. So when I walk down the street, I feel things that I see and that's not synesthesia for me. What it is, is it's a deliberate decision to have multi-sensory integration to really make my body feel things. So I feel music with my skin, et cetera. So going back to... Which is uh, phenomenal. Just coming at this from the perspective of supporting people in cultivating their intuition and helping people cultivate their inner knowing for you to automatically have that. Do you think it makes you someone who's more able to create in your life because you can sense into what it would feel like to have it done? Well, okay. There's a variety of things about the autism that actually caused me to be able to create 
more, create better. And some of it has to do with just the sensory joy. I think when the violence had happened, I lost my senses. Everything was dark. And so the day that I decided to live had partially to do with this sort of reawakening of my senses. And so from one perspective, every day after that was a, a constant pursuit of beauty because I needed to believe in beauty again to be mm. able to heal. I needed to believe that there was good in the world, that there was order in the world. And so being able to marvel at that stuff when you see it is really important. And so that sort of also generates an incredible enthusiasm, incredible energy that you get very driven. And when you have that drive of that promise, there's nothing else you can do. Like there was no other choice I could feasibly make that wouldn't feel like torture because everything had to be the fulfillment of the promise. And so every year of my life after that was 100% dedicated to finding a way to fulfilling that promise. So that is part of it, right? Mm -hmm. This incredible intense focus, but also this incredible joy. I mean, the interior world was so vivid, just so vivid. But on top of it, if you can't read people's faces, it doesn't occur to you to wonder what other people are thinking about you. It just doesn't, it doesn't compute. It doesn't develop um, right. in the same kind of way until you reach the point of self-consciousness when, you know, your sister tells you five years after the fact that, you know, you hurt her deeply when you walked out 20 minutes into her baby shower, you know, things like that will make right. you self-conscious again. Of but course. Uh, in a different way. However, you know, when it doesn't compute to think about what is someone thinking, it doesn't compute to be embarrassed. And so right. as a result, that translates into losing self-doubt, right? Which is absolutely um, incredible to me. Yeah. Well, it's really important because, you know, there were so many things that I would do that people probably wouldn't have even tried if it wasn't for the fact that I was ignorant to the possibility of making a fool of myself or any importance around that either. I mean, who cares about making a fool of yourself? You're very focused on the purpose. And so it's no longer about you, which is right. another aspect. I mean, that translated into another learning for me, because what happens when we make our goals bigger than ourselves? Our ego takes a backseat. And then it's no longer about us anymore. It's about the mission. It's about what we've promised to do. And so then any rejection is no longer personal. Any disappointment is no longer personal. You're just so driven and it becomes a form of jet fuel. But what I also believe is that we were born to take care of each other. Our ancestors came from tribes. We were supposed to take care of each other and be responsible for each other when we're now in these, you know, monolithic, gigantic cities where we've yeah. never lived closer in proximity to each other, but we've never felt further apart. There is that sort of des uh, disconnect, that sort of meso health that occurs that we cease to be aware of where you think you're living a healthy life. But then when you start to actually connect with your purpose, that's where your genius comes out. That's where the solutions come about and the energy comes about. And then all of a sudden it feels superhuman, but it's really simply that we've become more fully human. It's like filling the saggy tires of a car and then you're amazed at how fast it drives. It's like those wheels were not supposed to be so saggy, you know? Yes, exactly. And so until we connect with our purpose, we're going to be like a saggy tire, you know? Yeah. And we're not going to recognize it because we've normalized it, right? Yeah, yeah. So when it comes to that 
hyper focus on you know a mission on a, a purpose which is a lot easier to come by as an autistic person because we do have that hyper focus we you know a lot of autistics get into social justice there's an enormous sense of requirement for justice and on top of it we're just not not self-conscious and we don't beat around the bush we tend to be very pragmatic of course nobody understands us and so they all think that we're jerks because you know we're dancing all over their boundaries not realizing that we're doing it and we're not getting those subtle cues that neurotypicals like to give to each other we don't get them because it doesn't exist in the same way yeah exactly exactly but anyway you know I could go on no but this is I think it's so helpful and I'm really grateful that you're sharing this because for people listening who are more neurotypical I think this will be really illuminating and I also really love how you are describing the superpowers of people on an autistic spectrum and how that leads to fulfilling a mission and creating in a very purposeful way that I actually think a lot of neurotypical people strive toward and don't know how to tap into. Like I work with a lot of people who are just trying to figure out how to feel worthy of their dreams and desires because Mm -hmm. the social conditioning and the emotional conditioning is so heavy that those layers need to be peeled away just to feel like there's permission to pursue the dream. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, like the first thing that I would tell anybody who is questioning whether they are worthy of their dreams, number one, if you find a deeper purpose, if you can connect everything that you do to the values that you have and the purpose where you think you need to make your your mark in the world, then that struggle, you just get over it, right? It Mm -hmm. ceases to be if you keep your eye on that ball. At the same time, another beautiful thing about this hyposensitive reawakening, you know, post the homelessness and post the deep sadness that Mm -hmm. I had experienced and trauma, when you can delve into this beautiful world, this incredibly fascinating world, I mean, my experience with the world is very full-bodied. Uh, my skin is is a very important part. So my somatosensory system is really critically important. And, and so being able to really delve into that, it's really helped me. Like my wife is a writer. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the pieces of advice that I'm always giving her is just enjoy the process. The process is your gift to yourself. When you're done the book, it's no longer yours. It's, it belongs to the world. So stop thinking about the finish line. Enjoy the process because this is the life you're supposed to be living. And then yes. you give it to the world, you know? Um, That's beautifully put. Yeah. And we could probably go into some sort of discussion around Puritanism and all of the history where you were supposed to deny your body, deny your joy, deny all sorts of things. But we do have some very strong remnants of that inclination, even when you're thinking about, you know, the 80s and the secret of my success and all that stuff, you know, just work yourself mm-hmm. to the bone or Elon Musk, you know, be, be super committed to it, you know, sleep under your desk and all that stuff. We have this real attachment to suffering that I think comes from some long history of self-denial, like ge- just generating that self-denial is godliness and all that stuff. So if we can get over that, like we were born with these bodies we were born with these minds we were born with our dreams mm-hmm. so you know we really should use them if they exist in you 
it doesn't mean that you're not going to do good work. It doesn't mean that you're just going to sit under a tree and, you know, whistle to yourself and do nothing. You know, it might be the thing that sparks the greatest transformation and the greatest impact that we could actually have. Yes, it will vivify you, if that's a word. I love that. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about what that looked like for you? If you were going from that place of darkness and quiet into the multi-sensory life that followed to what you've now created and this ripple effect of impact that you're having? Yeah. Well, okay. So first of all, it's important to note that it's almost like the old literature analysis of innocence to experience, right? It reminds me of the waves, the waves that I was that I was <laughs> studying during my homeless days. Virginia Woolf's The Waves takes you from the childhood innocence where, you know, it's simple descriptions of everything, but it's total deep observation of everything. And then you lose that innocence and then you regain it in a new mature way. Mm-hmm. This was very much what was going on with me. I mean, I had a rich world, but I didn't know I had it. Then when the violence happened, it was like I had this half anthropoid sarcophagus around my back, like I had a shell or a coffin around right. me because all I could do was just see directly in front of me. My senses were so dulled. Everything behind me was black and it was almost like a protection, right? It's the um, survival mode. Yeah. But, you know, when you're someone who's hyposensitive, it's also kind of like you live in space and like a lot of autistics feel like aliens. Right. But you live in space where there's all this darkness when you bring yourself out to your senses, because it does take work to bring your senses to life, which is why there's all that fascination with deep vibrations and all that stuff. It's like entering into the earth and it's like a tropical oasis of sorts. When I emerged out of that darkness again, when I was able to come back to earth and really experience the richness, what happened was, I'll I'll actually tell you a beautiful story because it, it represents the awakening. These books always talk about you know, there's one moment that makes you decide to live, but it it's not true. It's a series of moments that chip away and revitalize you. But for me, one of the deepest memories that I have is when you're in the shelter, they kick you out in the morning and you can't come back until the evening when dinner is getting ready. So you have to find something to do all day. And so at one point when I was still deep in my depression and there was still that deep silence and blackness, just a dull awareness of the world. I remember being in one of the subway stations. It was Spadina or Bay. I can't Mm -hmm. remember. And I was sitting at the top of the stairs and I was watching this group of people. And back then, you know, this was like 91, 90, okay. 91, people didn't have cell phones. So they were interacting with each other. They were talking with each other, but they were all in their own little microcosms, you know? Right. So it'd be one person reading or, you know, looking at people or whatever, or it would be two people or three people, but they'd all be in their own little microcosm, completely independent from every other person in that room. Yet, what was amazing to me was all of a sudden, my senses started to awake. I was in this deep silence. And by the way, I also don't have words in my head. That's another thing that I realized was very different. I think in pictures, just like good old Temple Grandin, um, which is wonderful, by the way, when you need to build Ikea furniture. (laughs) But anyway... (laughs) I was standing there and everybody was in their own little microcosm. And then all of a sudden I started to notice that their voices moved 
it would rise and fall together. The best example you can have of that kind of collective sound is when you're in a restaurant and somebody drops a glass, everybody goes silent. Yes. And then slowly you see the sound, you hear the sound. I see it. I feel it. You know, it's yes. multisensory. Anyway. Sorry. This mm-hmm. whole podcast is about understanding different ways of sensing. So I think it's really yeah. helpful and really important that you're describing that. Yeah. So when you're in a restaurant, like the, the sound slowly comes back when people realize everything's okay, but it comes together in a beautiful pattern that makes us all connected. As I was listening to these people, I was observing their voices, the sound and the volume and all of that stuff would rise and fall and swirl. It was like watching the murmurations of starlings. <laughs> and it was such a beautiful way for my senses to start to reawaken because one of the things I struggled with, again, not knowing I was autistic, and boy, it makes total sense now, was that I didn't think that I could ever make a friend. I didn't think I could ever make a friend. And at that very moment, when I listened and felt their voices, you know, moving together, I realized that even if I could never make a single friend, it didn't matter because we all moved together. And that was one of the small awakenings that brought me back into life and brought me back into wanting to live to the point where I made that promise, right? That's such mm. a beautiful story. Really, really beautiful. I mean, I recommend to anyone to just sit and, and observe in awe collective motion because it is really true. It's not just the starlings that, mm-hmm. that move together. We all are impacted by each other, maybe super subtle, but we are impacted by each other. Even a stranger on a corner could be observing something that you're doing and it might change their day. So, you know, there's no way that we can not coexist. That in itself can change you. It can change your entire view of life. It can change your entire feeling within life. And it really is a great source of energy and brilliance and purpose, you know? And it's available to us at all times, even when we don't remember that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really profound reminder. Do you think in our last couple of minutes together, would you just share... hmm. In our last couple of minutes, would you be willing to say a little bit about what you did end up creating? So what we ended up building was something really extraordinary. I ended up in the corporate technology sector, and it was only when I was at the top of my sector, earning $270,000 that year, that my company decided to pay for a coach for me. And having that coach was completely transformative. And all I could think is I could have used this years ago. And it just Mm -hmm. seemed so incredibly unfair that the people who needed the high quality services the most to overcome all of the intersecting barriers, they would never be able to afford it. And so that's how the idea of Up With Women came about. I just thought, what if we got coaches, certified coaches, to each commit to serving one woman for a year? And, you know, what kind of transformation could we make? And it was amazing because right out of the gate, right from day one, we had such incredible results 
where we would see people who had come to us with no hope, sometimes not even, you know, having the same questions about living as I did and feeling like they just don't even know where to go. And yet coaching is something that, you know, unlike mentoring, where mentoring, the mentor tells you what to do. And if I were you, I would do this. And maybe I know someone at the chicken factory who has a job for you. With coaching, coaches are trained quite intensely on building trust and eliciting their own path, the client's own path. So, you know, you really have to be agnostic as a coach because you're not supposed to be inserting your own opinion. And what would happen from that is that we would watch people designing their lives and then being held accountable to getting there, um, finding their way there. And so the, the incredible diversity of life change stories that we had were incredible. You know, we'd have you know, everybody had started from the point of being uh, living in poverty. Many had, were living in shelters or had just gotten out of a shelter. And yet they would be building, one built a West African dance and instrument making workshop for children in underserved communities in Ontario and Quebec. She was one of our Franco-Ontarian clients. And then, you know, we have someone else who, you know, was legally blind. And yet she managed to not only get the job of her dreams and at a very, very good wage, but also she built two businesses. She was able to take all of the volunteer work that she was doing and turn them into paid businesses. You just see so many transformations. Another one worked with her daughter and created this line of coloring books. It's I Love You in 50 African Languages. It's this beautiful coloring book. That sounds stunning. So you just see these incredible transformations. And it's because we helped people to direct their own rudder, follow yes. their own path, find their way to the thing that they were born to do. And also statistically, the changes were incredible. You know, average annual income increase of over 200%, 1,500% increase in full-time jobs. Unemployment was cut almost in half. Most recently, it was 48% had terminated their social assistance all within six to 12 months. That's right? huge. So it's, you're seeing these big huge. changes. Yeah. And confidence and creativity and, you know, skills building. I mean, it's just really beautiful. You know, often municipalities judge the success of a program serving people that are underhoused or homeless if they have even a 20% positive outcome, let alone the magnitude of impact that Up With Women has. Yeah, it's really transformative. And I honestly believe listening to your journey and hearing about the program today, it just seems so obvious that, of course, this is an organization led by someone, you, who had that moment of insight and that clarity on what your mission would be. And so, of course, you would be supporting people to then become clear and supported to follow their own dreams rather than having some kind of top-down prescribed model. I really, really see the integrity and the recognition that each person does have their own world of infinite possibilities. And so, of course, they should be supported to do that. And the fact that you've actually created that and then co-created it with graduates of your program, too, I think is just so inspiring and such a powerful reminder to the whole community services sector of the way in which we should be working. 
Mm, I agree. I agree. Amen to that. Is there any final thought that you would want to share with our listeners having had this conversation today or for somebody who's wondering about taking a leap in their own journey? Well, I think we're born with dreams and we're born with bodies and minds and we should use them and enjoy them. There is a way to do good in the world and also thoroughly and deeply enjoy the process. Thank you so much, Leah. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you, my dear. It was wonderful to talk with you as well. To our audience, I want to say thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe, share, or click the notification button on your podcast platform. For those listening on Apple Podcasts, I would be so grateful for a five-star rating and a written review. This will also make it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you want to connect with me more, please join me on Substack. I will be posting longer-form written pieces about my intuitive changemaker journey, as well as bonus audio content and having online discussions with the Intuitively Aligned podcast community. You can also find me through Instagram at Sydney Rebecca. Yes, that's Sydney Rebecca without an A on the end. Or through my website, www.sydneybloom.com. I also want to give a shout out to our podcast producer, Wilson Lynn. And I want to thank you again for joining me on this journey. I can't wait for you to hear the next episode. Mm-hmm.